welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea, and as I wrap up season four of the podcast, I can think of no better guest to bring to you than one of my dearest friends, Marcy Alvis Walker. Marcy has been a guest on the podcast more than any other guest. After first appearing in November of 2019, and then coming back several times for our series during Black History Month. Marcy is truly one of the most brilliant humans I know and the most gifted of writers. With her popular Instagram account, Black Coffee with White Friends, where she focuses on race and theology. She's also the writer and creator of Black Eyed Bible Stories, a Substack newsletter and podcast focused on Black womanist readings of the Bible. Last month, Marcy finally released her long-awaited debut book into the world, Everybody Come Alive, a memoir and essays. And let me tell you, it did not disappoint. In it, Marcy shares her bittersweet journey of pain and joy and what it takes to become a person who embraces being black, a woman, and holy in America. In our vulnerable conversation, Marcy shares more of her deeply personal story with her own mother's journey with mental illness and its imprint on Marcy's life today. Y'all, this is a sacred conversation and one I don't take lightly that Marcy was willing to open up and go even deeper with me to the places that she didn't go into in her book. So listen in on our conversation. And if you haven't already bought Marcy's book, go buy it today. I promise you, once you get it and read it, Marcy will be one of your favorite authors. And you too will quite possibly become more alive by ingesting the soul-nourishing words on the pages of her story. So Marcy, we're going to dive into this conversation. So I was looking, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast, by the way, Marcy. I'm home! Like literally, I think you're 10th ten, ten time on here. I was thinking about this today. I'm like, I, she has definitely been the guest that's been on this podcast the most over the last three and a half years and but it has been a while since you've been on it has and I was looking back so you first came on you were one of my early earlier guests in 2019 so fall of 2019 like almost four years ago I don't even know how that's possible it doesn't seem like it's possible oh my gosh and I don't ever want to go listen to that conversation because I don't even know what I possibly could have thought I known or was saying or was asking you <laughs> and I know I, I mean I don't know so I first heard like I'm trying to think how I even came across you I think it was I don't think I know I had heard you on the speaking of racism podcast with Jen Kenny, mm-hmm. and that was when I was kind of like breaking out of that white evangelical world and started listening to other voices and somehow the stars aligned and I heard you and I was like just blown away and then I started reading your blog which you started writing in 2018 so I just remember reading through that that was your book and then getting brave enough to ask you so thank you for saying yes to me in in 2019 when I was stumbling my way through too yeah yeah we were babies Oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. So let's go back and I'm going to do this interview, this interview conversation a little different because I always ask people, well, tell me your origin story, but your whole book is your origin story. So we're going to get, <laughs> we're, we're going to get in, into that and I'm going to just kind of pull, we're going to talk about um, some of the major themes of mental illness, especially and being a daughter of a, of a mother that, that struggled with mental illness. But one of the, and like I read your book, from beginning to end and then reread. And then I just, just downloaded your audible. Cause I want to hear you read it. It's beautiful, Marcy, like beautiful. To, I'm like, what, what adjective can I tell her? Because it is just, it's one of the most beautiful, like intertwining of stories and Bible stories and songs. Like it's just, it's, it's breathtaking Marcy. So just know that, like, I know you've been told this, but it is like, my God, I was just listening to an interview with Barbara Brown Taylor and Krista Tippett, and they were talking about what, what is holy Barbara Brown Taylor was. And she says, holy, that which she did, she defined it in the terms of that, which is fully alive. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh my God, that's like Marcy's book. And that's the point of her book. I mean, the everybody come alive and your book is holy. And what you're doing in it is showing the holiness of all of us. So I think that best describes your book to me. Oh, I love that. I did not know that Barbara Taylor Brown had described Holy as that. Um, 
the book title comes from Jimi Hendrix. And I I had no idea she had said that about holiness, but I definitely agree. (laughs) Definitely. And so I know your book has its own origin story and we'll talk about that a little bit, but in the very back of your acknowledgement, you say to begin with, I want to acknowledge the still small voice that rose up inside me when I was 42 years old and whispered, say something. And you say, I wish I hadn't waited so long, but then I have to wonder, could you have written this book when that voice came up in you 42, when you were 42 would have been 10 years ago. You know, that's a really good question. I would, I think I could have, I don't feel And when I say I wish I wouldn't have waited so long, I wish I would have done this in my 30s, in my 20s. I certainly had these thoughts, but I thought I was wrong to have them. Mm. You know, I thought I must be wrong. They must be right. Because I I hadn't done my own exegesis of of my faith. I, I had just taken everything at face value, what the pastor said, what the... And I would often leave with so many questions and knew that everything that I was hearing didn't fit the world that I was existing in, particularly, you know, the beauty of the people who loved me, who, you know, I might hear a preacher talk on and on about the exact people who were doing the most care for me, you know? So I think I always knew these things and felt these things, I just didn't feel that I had a right to feel them and or know them. Mm. I once said to Kevin Garcia, I once told them on their podcast that um, I often trusted institution over my own intuition mm. and it's something that I'll never do again. And when it was, when it was just me out here in the world, just my life that I had to think about before I was a mom, that's perfectly fine. You know, I, I can undo that. I, I'm responsible for myself only. But when I was trusting the institution over my own intuition, when it came to my mothering, that, I don't know, something about that's unforgivable. Like, you know, I just have a hard time believing that I did that. And I certainly did. So I could have, written this book, but I wouldn't have dared to write this book. And that's what I I think that's where I was going and thinking with that question. And especially, I think just coming to terms with some of the stories as being holy, where I think, you know, I look back 10 years ago some, and still like stories that we maybe we thought were shameful and now see them as holy and part of our coming into being. And that's what I saw so much throughout throughout your book and the ordinary stories. I mean, none, I don't feel like none of them, any of them are ordinary, but like you talk about my family, my people have no record of their participation in a single March, any documentation of their names or any petition for liberation. They were ordinary and as unheroic as the rest of us, they lived and by God, that was enough. And so I think you finally seeing that the holiness of just the ordinary and living. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I used to be so jealous when I heard other um, Black authors talk about how their parents were, you know, um, involved in political action and civil rights, or even if their family was just involved at, you know, they had a mom who was just involved at school. (laughs) I, I was always really jealous of that. But now as an adult who's had to just survive, I get it. I get it. It's really hard to just exist. And my people were existing at the margins. They weren't, they were uneducated as far as my mom didn't even have a GED until she went to prison. They didn't have um, access to a lot of different privileges. And so they were just trying to be the best citizens that they could be not just of this country, but just in our humanity. They really were. And it really was enough. It was them just trying to be good people. 
Maybe share a little bit, and then we're going to dive into some specifics of your book. But if you would bring it up again, because I think it's so powerful what you shared with me at the beginning about just sharing these, quote, ordinary stories, ordinary family, even though they're extraordinary, but your sisters and cousins finally just feeling seen and heard and important because you told them that power of those stories, just putting them out there. And has that, has that been surprising to you? Super surprising. I really wasn't sure. I'll tell you <laughs> In the middle of writing this book, I think I had just finished like the first draft and Mm -hmm. I sent it off to my editor and my first editor and um, told my sister about it. One of my sisters and she told another sister and this is the sister. She told the sister who's the keeper of the records. This is a sister who's on Ancestry.com. You got questions. You need to know how we're related to this person or that person. She's your go to. She's my oldest sister. Um, Debbie, she tells Debbie, yeah, she just sent it. And Debbie's like, just sent it. Shouldn't we like look over it and make sure that she got everything right? And it was funny because my sister Mia's like, you know, it's her book, her story. It's not our book. It's her book. She gets to do what she wants with it, which is true. But I understand my sister like, yes, it is my story, but it, but I don't. I'm not the only keeper of the story. So it really, it, they didn't see the book until it was finished. They never, they did not see the book until they literally landed here in Chicago the weekend that the book released. The book released on Tuesday, they arrived on Thursday. That was the first time that they held the book, first time. And then I suddenly started getting text messages from a cousin who had bought pre-ordered the book, a cousin who I hadn't talked to in a long while and went to the same high school that I went to, have been through the same kind of culture that I've been through. Um, And to have him be so emotional about it. And he's a guy's guy. He's a man's man. Like, you know, like to have him be so openly emotional about it, to have my sisters be openly emotional about this book being in the world, to have other cousins reach out to me, to have my nephews, my adult nephews, my beautiful, gorgeous, funny, kind-hearted nephews fly with their mothers to see about their auntie and this book that their auntie had put into the world. You know, like, I don't want to cry about it, but it's, it's, you know, these are people who, who go to work every day they work so hard. I, I can't tell you how hard they work. Um, they work sometimes more than one or two or three jobs, you know, to make things come together in life. They're just good people. And they too are part of the Mago Day. They too are God's reflection. My sisters love Jesus and, and they are going to their churches and reading their Bibles and doing all the same things things that so many of these women that I, white women that I knew at my kids' um, private Christian academy, but they don't sit around saying that, you know, thank God I'm so blessed by the Lord because I have my quiet time. That's just not who they are. They're not counting their privilege as the, the small privileges that they have as some sort of blessing. You know what I mean? Their blessing is, my God, we have each other. My God, we made it. My God, we ex- we we survived. Yeah. We're still here. This is how I wrote down to start with your origin story. When you talk about in chapter five, this is the stuff I'm made of. This is the stuff my family's made of. We get hit by trains and we get on with our day. Like that chapter took my my breath away. Yeah. Um, for listeners, my my family got hit by a train. <laughs> um, so I remember I was married to my first husband and we were on the metro train going out to his parents and there was this ad on like the door saying you know like to be careful because you don't know anyone who survived train crash or something like that and I was like I know several people who survived a train (laughs) collision (laughs) and it's my family I was not born yet but 
it was like the car was demolished. My sister just told me this weekend, reminded me, yeah, I was a baby and they found me in the trunk of the car because this was before car seats and all that kind of stuff. Like, you know, no one cared about those things back in the 50s and 60s. Your kids just were free falling in the back of the car. And yeah, we survived. My mother and my siblings survived that. <laughs> and it just feels very apropos to the rest of who we are. Your mom, like, wow. You said she was there in her go-go boots, smoking her cigarettes, and she just wanted to get on with her day. And it wasn't even like, oh my God, this is a blessing we survived. Like you really, like I said, that chapter kind of hit me really hard. Mom's not like that. She wasn't like that. She, mm-hmm. and I'm guessing she was in go-go boots. I know she had them. I, you know, she dressed, she was a young mom. She couldn't have been more than 20 something years old still in her 20s and she had four kids Um, and I just know her she just nothing ruffles my mom ever like she the most horrific things can happen and my mom usually might be the cause of that horrific thing happening by the way but she just does that I remember when everyone was talking about Marvin Gaye's death and my mom loved Marvin Gaye and Everyone's talking about Marvin Gaye's death and how, you know, like how his father murdered him and the whole story. And we we tell my mom, we were like, oh, who's going to break it to mom that, you know, Marvin Gaye's dead because that, you know, she really loved her. It's Marvin Gaye. And we told her and she just looked at us and said, well, ain't that peculiar? She made a joke. Like, I just, I'm like, who does that? That's my mom. Just even when we were having trauma. She just was always steady. There were so many times that something horrible happened and my mom came back to us as if nothing had happened. And the irony of that, and I will get into this, like with your mom's struggle with mental illness, but the irony of that, your mom was steady, yet Mm -hmm. the personality, the huge highs and lows and extremes within it is striking for sure. Yeah. And I want to circle back around to that. And I want to, I want to keep talking about your mom. Like I really want this intent of this conversation to be just so honoring to your mom and those that struggle with mental illness with that. I will say the two biggest surprises when I read your book was one that it's so heavily about your mom. I was not expecting that. Me neither. (laughs) I want to, I want to talk about that because then the other surprise is I was not expecting so many Bible verses and Mm -hmm. I love it both because I think they're both things that you really wrestled with, Mm -hmm. with coming to love as they are and see differently. So with your mom being so heavily woven throughout the book, and you just said that was a surprise to you. Tell me how that came to be. I mean, I know a little bit, but Share with me and our readers how that came to be that your mom really was center stage in so much of, of your book. You know, it's funny. I kind of sense her saying, because I was always meant to be center anyway. <laughs> I kind of just... Of course. But, um, but honestly, it was just as we were editing my, going through my proposal and after the first few pages that I gave in, that, that I handed in, and then we would meet about them. And as we would meet about and it was really like a how to basically be a good christian white ally that was what the book was it was really how to be a good friend <laughs> um to, no 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 that was not the book you were supposed to write marcy that was what i thought they wanted <laughs> like i really did i didn't know what they wanted from me mm-hmm. but then you know we would be talking and and they would make a suggestion and i would say something about my mother or i would a story would drop or i i, I would just mention just how you do. You're just talking with people and you might say, oh, my mom used to say this. And well, yeah, she said it because of this. And and they would just go, wait, come again. Like maybe we're not, this isn't the book. Maybe the book is more about you. And that was Sarah Atkinson at Tyndale. She was like, I think you should be talking more about you, your story. Like that's what people want. They want to know more about you. And it was really nice to have someone give you the permission to do that because, you know, people don't go around saying, tell me about you. Like people don't. don't. And if I talk about myself, it's impossible not to start with my mother because she has informed so much of who I am today. Everything that we went through with my mom 
the highs and the lows inform how I see the world, how I see God, how, how I pray. Because my mom was one of the most marginalized people I've ever known. She was Black. She grew up in Jim Crow and she was married at 16 years old. She didn't have a, a high school education. She dropped out of school to start a family. She was a felon. She went to prison. She's been institutionalized, put into state institutions for um, mental illness. I don't know anyone who's more marginalized than that. She had all the strikes against her. And yet here I am existing, all of her children existing. So when I would sit in these mommy groups, Christian mommy groups with a bunch of white women praying for their kids' SAT scores or praying for their kids, I don't know, to just do the thing that they're obviously going to do okay in. I don't know. Um, it was hard because I come from this background of having so many more things set against your thriving. And these kids that we were praying for, they, there was nothing against them thriving. You know, sure. Is it possible that they will suffer? Sure, we're all human. They're going to suffer. They're going to go through things. But that's being human. And it's almost as if these women were praying against their humanity. They were praying against them failing. They were praying, praying against them having a stumble, praying against them knowing more about this world outside of the church doors, praying against, praying against that. And I'm just like, but really that's, that's what it is to live. That is failing, being part of this world that is not a Christian world. Um, and thank God it's not. That's the beauty of God, right? That it's not just one person's ideology that's that that God is made of. So it's it was strange to me to be in those rooms because my mother was their nightmare. And yet your mother was probably one of the most fully alive. Exactly. Fully humans. Exactly. Exactly. And, oh, and I, it struck me too. I mean, your mom and correct me if I'm wrong, but really was your greatest source of pain and rejection in your life with being abandoned, um, with not, you know, not being able her mental illness, but then also she was your most powerful force of love and acceptance in your life too. So it's like, reconciling that within your story to me was so, so powerful because that is what allowed you to see your mom's complete and utter holiness. Yeah. Um, it's funny because I'm, I'm just really making the connection now. It's kind of how I feel about God. Like, I feel like God is my biggest source of pain, mm -hmm. but also my biggest source of love. Like, you know, um, I, I feel the same way about my mom, you know, like to be abandoned. I've often felt abandoned by God. How could I not? I'm a black woman in America. I feel abandoned by God on a regular basis. And perhaps because I have this relationship with my mom, it makes my expectations of God more realistic, perhaps, because I don't see a God who is all powerful. I know there are people who are just like clutching your Bible right now, rocking back and forth in the corner because I said that I don't think God is all powerful. But I'm just like, how can God be all powerful and all loving? Power is oppressive and a terrible attribute. Power, to me, isn't something to be honored. I think freedom is different. Now, if you want to say that God is all free, all is total liberation, then I'm 100% behind you on that. You want to say that God is 10,000% for freedom, then I'm good for that. But power? Mm -hmm. Power means that there has to be something that need, that has to be oppressed. That's right. It doesn't exist outside of that. So no, I, I don't, I, I can't get with a God like that. So yeah, and it's the same thing with my mom. If, if my mother is with the attribute of motherhood that we've placed on women, 
this all-powerful source who's supposed to protect me, who's supposed to make sure that I have a good life and it's all on her, then my mom failed terribly, felt terribly. But if being a mother is to be this nurturing source who is completely human and fallible and still nurtures while they're failing, Hmm. If a mother can be that, then my mother succeeded. She loved us even when she was failing to love us. Yeah. And you say even like you acknowledge my mom's least favorite thing to be was a mother. Absolutely. (laughs) But but yet she did it to the very, very best of, of her abilities on this earth. And one of the big constraints was her mental illness. And you talk about the story before the story, the the before the before. And we're talking about the stuff your family is made of. You say, we weave our stories with tight stitches. The first stitch is my mother's mental illness, sewn with a thin needle whose narrow eye kept pushing out the thread. And then you don't want to talk about her own mother that really wouldn't acknowledge your mother's mental illness. So let's, let's talk about that topic a little bit and just that has played such a role in your story. And I, I also think about like our past conversations that we really didn't even talk about this, you and I. Like, I think we didn't even acknowledge and talk about this till like I started sharing with my own daughter. So has that been something that you really struggled to accept and talk about that realization and that reality? Has that been shameful for you in your life? Or have you always just really acknowledged it? Kind of where you want to go with that? Never been shameful. It's just always been fact. Yeah. So it's kind of like to talk about my mom's mental illness is it's kind of just to talk about my mom just breathing. It was never something that ever came up in conversation just because it just was such a part of our lives. Like, I I don't think it it had anything to do with shame. It's something that I would share with people when I started dating them. I remember that. Like, I would I would have a moment where I'd say, okay, well, you're about to meet my mom. Let me just tell you, you know, like you're going to meet her, you're going to love her, but you need to know what you're getting into. But yeah, no, never shame. She was just too, I was too enamored of her and too in love with her to ever be ashamed of her. But it, it really isn't something that you talk all that much about the older you get, the less you, the less you really talk about your parents. Like it's, it's the, because you become a parent and you just start talking about your kids more than you do or your husband or your friends or, you know, what you're watching on Netflix, your parent becomes just less of an identity for you. And, and it's funny because so much so that when Trump was elected, suddenly people were talking about their parents and they had never talked about their parents before. <laughs> suddenly people were just like, oh my gosh, my, my mom, my dad, like I, I never knew. Um, so with my mom, it, you know, it, it just never came up in conversations regularly. Also, um, I've always been careful about writing about my mom because I never wanted to dehumanize her and and by by not giving her enough space to be known because she's bigger than an Instagram post. So true. Um, I can't just post about that and, you know, be done with it. So it's just something that I've steered clear of trying to talk about actual human beings that I love in my Instagram posts. Like, I, you know, I don't, I, I talk about Max, but I don't talk about Max. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I talk about my husband, but I don't talk about my husband. I feel like it's important to, for people not to get an idea of who someone that they've never met is in their head. Like, I, I don't want people to think they know Max without knowing Max. Yeah, I totally get that. And what you just said, one post or one little blog post does not do justice to to the fullness of their humanity. I mean, I really think people, and we've talked about this, that suffer with mental illness, they're so much more multidimensional, I think, than many of us that would be classified as whatever normal stable. I mean, you know, we've talked about how indigenous people worship those that are bipolar or see them as special extra, you know, senses. So it's like, you're so right that one conversation or one post does not do justice. I mean, 
your mother needed a book and there could be more volumes. I'm sure. Like you said, even in it, like I can't even tell like with John, like all the stories that could be told about Jesus. I can't even begin to tell all the stories that could tell about my mother and her humanity, just like you with Max or me with my daughter. So seeing the sacredness and the holiness of those with mental illness. I mean, I think you just started to like show the tip of that iceberg. So I really want to acknowledge and thank you for that. Well, that, that means a lot to me because it, it's really hard that even now in 2023, it's still so stigmatized. It's still this very stigmatized mental condition, um, medical condition. It's an illness. And yet people treat it as a like, you know, people are choosing to have these disorders and and that because they have this disorder that they don't have anything to offer. And it's really funny to me because in all my research, we have a lot to think, a, a lot a lot of what we have, we have mentally, um, people who have had mental disabilities and mental disorders to thank for that, like loads of things. Some of so, the greatest thinkers and inventors and artists, I mean, yes, just, suffered with mental illness, yes. That, that actually lived with mental illness, they were able to create to see, to know things that in our wellness were limited to, because that's what happens with every privilege. And I think that that's a something I'm recognizing. When you're privileged with health, money, talent, any sort of capability, that privilege really closes you off from experiencing the fullness of what a lived experience can be. And it's it's just completely true. So when we, there's just things you can't see, your privilege won't allow you to see it. Um, I, there are just things that I could never see that now I see because I had a kid who was in my eyes, fine. They had some anxiety, but that was, you know, what most kids of their generation had. Um, but now to have this kid who has a mental disorder, I have, I see more, I see the world more beautifully than I, than I did previously. Like there are things that I hadn't been paying attention to and, and then, but now I do. Um, the same thing happened when they came out as queer. That was, you know, a real eye opener for me. And I think my growing up with a mom opened my eyes to see, to just even read the Bible differently, you know? So to pray differently, mm -hmm. to worship, to, to just, to see a different kind of a God, because I could not, you know, I always thought it was strange when people prayed for healing. It was always really difficult for me. And it wasn't because I didn't think people should pray for healing, but it was because I was told in church to pray for healing when I was real little, in my little Baptist church that I grew up in. And I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I wrote prayers in journals and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed, and I prayed for decades for my mother's healing. And it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. And how do you go on trusting a God who doesn't answer your little child heart's prayer for healing? So I either had to give up the idea of God or something that they said about that prayer of healing wasn't correct. It's one or the other. And so I've studied, like, what does that mean to pray for healing? What, what, what was Jesus really doing? What was happening in all of the other Bible stories that Jesus had nothing to do with, all the Old Testament stories? What are other faith traditions saying about healing? What is true healing? Mm -hmm. Is it the absence of disease and disorder, right? Mental disorders or um, disabilities is the absence of that? Because if that's true, then what does that mean about the beautiful perfection of someone who's in a disabled body? Like, so that can't be true. It can't be absent of that. 
So what is true healing? And I found it in um, a book called Waking. I think it's called Waking. I, I have to check on that, but it's by mm-hmm. Matthew Samford. And he was this teenager who became um, a quadriplegic and he became a yoga instructor later in his life because he realized that I may not walk again, but that does not mean I can't be healed. Mm. And when I heard him say that, I think I heard he was interviewed by Krista Tippett's on, on being. And when I heard him say that, I it it explained my mother. I was like, oh, she was healed. There was so much healing that God was bestowing. Yeah. But all I, I, but what I wanted was for her to not have schizoaffective disorder. Right. Or to be like what the world tells us is healed. And yeah, because the world can't see that there could be beauty in that disorder or a part of God, an imprint of God, even in that disorder. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or, and, and that's not to make a light of illness. I'm, I'm certainly not doing that. And it's something that I still struggle with. So I'm not sitting here trying to give anyone answers to their cancer, their diabetes, their whatever it is that you're facing. Please understand that I'm not. But what I'm saying is that what is wholeness when we've been told that wholeness is when your body is completely perfect, when your mind is completely perfect, when your house is in order, that that's wholeness. But it has to be something else because too many of us exist. I know I'm whole, but I know a lot about me is not, you know? So, you know, it's just in the book, being able to write about that kind of existence was important to me. Well, I think that also ties into, because I wrote this in my notes because it's something I've also struggled with. And I think anybody that has mental illness in your family does of like wanting to be that person's savior or feeling like that's the burden on you. Like I, I am the whole and holy one. So I, I need to save this person and like this struggle to let go of that. And you talk about wrestling with that, being that for your mom. And then also you said now at the end, you talk about my child is now my mother all over again, but I am not their savior. So getting to that point, I'm guessing was tied into this, this, this prayer of like the healing and what does that mean? So do you mind talking about that a little bit? Just that, that journey, not to be the savior of, of anyone, but especially people in our lives that have mental illness. Yeah. Well, at that point, I didn't even know that Max was bipolar, had bipolar. I know Marcy. And that's what I, I highlighted that. And it just hit me because I'm like, she didn't even know, but she, but I was still, I was trying to save Max all the time and Max never needed me to be their savior. I think because maybe I felt, it's funny because there have been times, let me tell you, if you if you feel like you, you're on top of the world and you're, you've got it all together and you're just this great person, you know, just wait till your kid becomes a young adult. <laughs> like, just, just wait. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I remember Max and I, I don't know what it was, but I was telling Max not to do something or, you know, like trying to control them. I really was. I was trying to control them. They're a full adult at this time. I think they might've been 19, 20, but they're an adult, right? And I'm trying to still control things like I did when they were 10. And Max said to me in this conversation, it was so humbling. They said, you know, mom, I think maybe you need therapy for that. I think maybe you need to just, uh, that's from your past. And I think you need to work on that. Mm -hmm. And they were not wrong. Mm -hmm. Now, did I appreciate them saying it? No, (laughs) they were not wrong. The point that they were trying to make was that you are imposing something that you're dealing with over here. And I'm not, stressed about that. I'm not worried about that. That's your worry. That's your problem. That's your angst. Don't bring it over here. I don't have any problem with this 
that's you. And so um, I kind of felt like if Max, if I raised Max perfectly, I would save my family. It's, it's a weird, nonsensical thing. I think it happens to children who are raised by out of trauma. You come out of trauma and you feel that you're going to make your family so perfect. It's going to cover up all this other trauma that's happened. It's going to fix it. Um, you're going to, you're going to save the day just by having this child or your children or your marriage or your home be the thing that wasn't when you were a kid. And Which goes back to you, like as wanting to be saviors and that yeah, was you know, trying yeah. to do it then. Yeah. It's so ridiculous. Yeah. And you're nobody's savior. You can't, nobody's asking you to do that. Those things that happened um, already have happened and you weren't the only person existing in the, in the happening of those things. I had siblings, cousins. My mom had husbands, lovers. She had parents. She had siblings. She had cousins. Like, you know, but I just kind of felt like it, it fell upon me to do this bidding. Now, interestingly, when my mom, whenever my mom was at the height of an episode, um, having a, a manic episode, or even a depressive one, she might say to me that I was the bride of Christ. So it's not, it's, it's, I probably subliminally took that to mean that I was supposed to somehow save her. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know, but I've hung up that, that robe. I don't choose to be anyone's savior, savior because I can't, and I can't even save myself. So it's just, it's so nice to let that down, to just say, I, I don't, I can't. But there's a mourning that goes with that too, because you grieve the fact that you can't fix it. You cannot fix it. You cannot undo what's been done. And that is sad and, and needs to be grieved and lamented. But it's also quite freeing because then you can find ways that you actually can have a more productive relationship with your loved one. I just recently heard an interview. It was, again, Krista Tippett. Both of us, we love her, yes. Yeah. Um, she did this interview with this couple who had a son who had schizophrenia and how they loved him and his schizophrenia, and he believed that he was God, like 10,000% that he was God. Mm -hmm. And they realized, okay, his experience that he is having is as real as the experience that I am having. And it would be a lot healthier for our relationship if I didn't try to tell him 10 times a day, you're not God, you're not God, you're not God. But if I actually accepted that he believes that he is God and I respected that mm -hmm. as an identity that he identifies with. And it was this beautiful freeing for them because then they could have actual conversations about his wellness yeah. right? and about how he, what his thoughts on that. They had never asked them before that. Mm. And it caused a lot of tension and um, anger and even violence um, because he was not being heard. And something that they said in that interview that I, I've learned, especially with Max and, and, you know, I was a kid, so I didn't have so much control with my mom, was that I get to allow, I, I, I can allow for Max to be, 100% in command of their own story. Um, and that sounds scary. It doesn't mean that I'm not there to help. It doesn't mean that I don't care about their well being. It doesn't mean any of that. But what it means is that they are not just this diagnosis. Yeah. They get to be fully alive too. They get to be fully alive no matter what. They don't, they don't have to be less of themselves 
even in moments of distress, they get to be fully alive, as alive as I am. And I have to respect their experience. I can't keep saying, we had this thing when Max came home from the hospital where I kept telling them what didn't happen. Well, that didn't happen. Well, that didn't happen. Well, it happened to Max. Yeah. It actually did happen to them. No matter how I remember it, their experience was real. Yes. I could sit here till I'm blue in the face, but how demeaning is it to have this experience that is so overwhelming and to have a bunch of people tell you it didn't happen? Mm. Didn't happen. Yeah. And, and just like with your own mother, when she was doing the dances or said she was queen or the princess and it's like letting them have their reality right their their own aliveness because that's how they have to heal and so i have to accept that i have to accept that it's not my reality that even matters in that moment it really is theirs yeah and if i'm talking about i want them to get better but you have to see it from my point of view that doesn't help them you know it 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 doesn't help. So it's been humbling to have to understand that their reality was that I was not a safe person. Mm -hmm. You know, it's heartbreaking, you know, because you always want to be your kid's haven. At least I did. But what it's taught me is, okay, then how do I become a safe person? Because me continuing to say what didn't happen or how I saw it makes me less safe for you. So how do I, how do I become a safe person for you? How do I become the haven that I want to be for you? I think part of that is what the very purpose of your book is seeing the full holiness and humanity in people right where they're at in their journey, not when they're quote healed or saved, but right where they're at, right where they're at, right where they're at. And it's, it's helped and it's, it's really humbled me. Yeah, I know, Marcy, I don't want to go too deep or more than you want to share, but it's it, the timing of your child struggling with their own mental illness when you're releasing this into the world about your own, your own mother. How have you made sense of that or have you? Is that something you're still trying to reconcile and struggle with, with God and the timing. Like, I know this was such a, such a hard part of your journey and story the last, cause this is all really new and fresh. So I don't know what you want to share with that Marcy, but I don't, I also don't want to just skim over it. Like, Oh yeah. Then she released her book. And then this, well, I'll say this, it helps not to believe in an all powerful God because in the past I would have equated that to, well, God must, well, God did this. God made it so that this happened at this time. Now I don't do that. Now what I say is that this is a human experience that I'm having. And within that human experience, things happen that can't be explained. There's mystery. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's this... There's horrors that happen and we don't get to choose that's what humanity is we don't get to choose the timing of those things right um max was having this didn't happen because i released the book i i am no one's um i'm not that powerful max was having a whole experience long before everything went down. They were, they were at away at college. They were having experiences there. They were, they have their whole experiences. I don't know about, they have a, a whole life that was happening that our lives are lived together in this family unit. Um, is part of that. Um, and that it's hereditary. It's another part of that, but I could have seen this sooner. I mean, there are times that Max had told me things and I just thought that they were being a teen or, you know, that's just, you know, normal. That's, you know, and that's also what I was told by our family therapists and other people. But 
Um, so no, I don't look at the timing as, as anything significant. I just look at it like, you know, life happens when it happens Yeah. and publishing a book doesn't, doesn't really stop life from happening. I had hoped that, <laughs> not going to lie. I kind of hope that, you know, I published this book and that, and then in, in the publishing of this book, I have some control, but I've not been in control of this book from the day I said, yes, I'll write a book. So um, I don't know. It, I wonder at it. You know, it's funny. I love how all the times in the Bible, Mary, it says Mary pondered. I've been pondering Matt since the day that the stick was pink. I've been pondering this life. I've been looking at this kid who is a part of me, but not me. Shares DNA, but has their own DNA. You know, shares so many qualities, but totally different. I've been looking and pondering from a distance and up close for forever. And this is just another thing to ponder. Before we wrap up, I'd love to know a couple things. What do you think your mom would think when she read, if she were here and read this book? Like I know she senses that she's somewhere and knows that her story is out there and being told. And even you share a story in your book that there, she met a woman in prison that was going to tell her story, but you're, you're the one, her daughter, her beautiful black daughter is the one that told her story. So tell me what you think she would think with reading it and knowing it's out in the world. She would wonder why there weren't pictures of her in the book. That'd be one thing. And she probably want to know why I didn't use the King James Version for any Bible verses. Um, that's another thing. I think she'd be proud, but I don't know that she would see herself in this book. I, I think my mom had a very different idea of who she actually was. You know, she saw herself more of a like a like a superstar like than a regular person so she was in her world and her story she was a superstar to her credit she was to her credit I think I think to her I could have written a heck of a lot more about her you know I think she'd be looking at the stories that weren't about her wondering why they weren't about her I really do I think she would be incredibly proud Marcy I I really I do so something else I want to ask, it says one of the quotes, and there's just so many, you said to this day, in many ways, I'm still waiting for my mother to come back to me. Do you still feel that with the birth of your book? Do you feel like that is in a way her coming back to you? Or do you think you'll just always feel that? I think that's part of the thing of being abandoned as a child, um, abandonment issues as a child. And when I say abandoned, my mom, my mom left us with um, relatives to raise us. Yeah. And we, we saw her in, during our school breaks. So I think that's just always going to be there. It's a lingering thing. When you're a child of abandonment, you do always feel like you're being left. You always feel like you're being left in some way. It's something that therapy helps with, but it's just this feeling of of something, someone going away and not coming back or when things change that you're being left, that you're being abandoned somehow. Even this releasing this book felt oddly like an abandonment because mm -hmm. it was mine, 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 mine for so long. And then to release them to the world and have a, to belong to other people felt a little like how I felt about my mom having other relationships outside of the relationship that she had with me. It's strange. So am I still waiting for my mother to come back? I recently started reading um, LaVon Briggs' um, Sensual Faith, and she talks about praying to the ancestors, something that I never had done before because, you know, evangelical Baptist upbringing. But I've adopted that practice of talking to my mom more often. And it's definitely been healing. I think she would say that she never left me. And I, and I think that that's the next thing that I probably have to process is how she didn't leave me, although I felt left. Marcy, there's so many ways that this conversation could have gone. People, the listeners, they have to get your book. Like it has to be like on a top three summer read because we didn't even touch upon like really the, your story of growing up in whiteness and being immersed in the desegregated school without any processing or talking to your little black self. Like when I was reading it, I just saw that little picture of you and your little first grade self and the stories you shared, like it just hits so, so deeply. So there's so many directions and things that we didn't even touch upon. 
that are you share in your book. So I just, I need, everybody needs to read your book and to, to really hear the magnitude of these, of these stories. I will say one chapter that hit me really deeply that I read like four times and made me cry was the, the Deerfield Shockley. Yeah. I think you brought up the ancestors and that's why I brought, like, I'm working on that level of just love and forgiveness for all humanity, even the Phyllis Shafley's of the world. Yeah. You are so oodles and far ahead with being able to like, even write that. It was cathartic to write that. I'll I'll tell you because I, I had never heard of her before. I watched the Hulu series, Mrs. America, and that's Mm -hmm. how I learned about her. And then I went and watched her videos and interviews and I read um, her newsletters and um, went on our website. Like I spent way too much time with her and could not, was fuming every single time. So angry. I mean, I felt the kind of frustration I feel when someone mentions Donald Trump. That's how I felt about and she supported him. She's a big, big supporter of Trump. Yeah. Um, yeah. She was alive just long enough. You know, <laughs> like it was, I really had this, like, I, I cannot love this person. I even like studied um, in the Jewish faith because I hated her so much, y'all. I hated her so much mm-hmm. that I looked up, how did Jews reconcile not hating the people who put them in the camp, how, and I learned that they don't forgive. Like they don't believe that whole thing. Like you just have to forgive. They don't believe that they're they're just like, there's some things that are just unforgivable. That was just such a, like, I agree. I think there are some things that are just unforgivable. And I believe that this was a person who could have known and did know the damage that she did to other communities and what she was saying and didn't care and was careless. I don't think that she was ignorant at all. I feel like she was very up on it. She knew that she was at times dealing with white supremacists. She did not care because I believe that she was a closeted white supremacist for sure and blatantly so at times. And it was a relief to like, like I really, I felt like I was talking directly to her in the letter. Like I, like I when felt I was, that I, too when I was reading it and then like your ancestors and welcoming her and like hoping on this other side, she sees the full humanity. Like it just, that was a level of. Well, I thought that that would be, I like, I didn't see that as a merciful thing. I see that as, I think the worst thing that could happen to you is for you to realize that you missed out on all that and that you have to live your eternal days knowing, knowing. And it was because like, this is full circle, the start of our conversation. It was because she had so many layers of privilege that she was wrapped up in that she completely missed out on all. Missed out on it. Mm-hmm. Not on it. it, which is really sad. The thing about her that people need to understand is that she had the privilege of having conversations with women who didn't have her privileges. Didn't matter. She had that privilege. Mm-hmm. She had the privilege of doing that on a national stage. It did not matter. She could talk to, I forget her last name, but Florence, she's a African-American ERA activist. She could have spoken to her at any time and known the plight of Black women did not matter to her. It didn't matter to her. And because she truly believed that her way of life was the way of life. We digress. <laughs> I digress. I don't want this conversation to end with her. I want to, I mean, but that does like just the comparison of being so full of privilege and whiteness and what this world tells you how she actually missed out on the fullness and holiness of life yeah. compared to your own mother or you that was everything that society said you shouldn't want to be or be right. but yet your mother mm-hmm. fully lived fully human fully holy as you I think is such just a stark comparison in what your book aims to do yeah, show. yeah. 
Yeah, thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad. Um, Marla Taviano um, actually texted me after she read that part of the book. I was just so glad that it it hit a nerve for some women. You know. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's maybe white women that it does because we could maybe see ourselves getting like in that. Per- like, I don't know. I'm not. That's an interesting. No, that was like you also with that for all the women. She really did. To this day, y'all, she has her legacy lives to this day. Like the newsletter still goes out. ERA still hasn't been ratified in all the states. No, no. Um, I, I, so, I did a whole episode on the ERA and her opposition yeah. to it. And anyway, yeah, so we're, not ta- we're done talking about her, Marcy. No more, <laughs> no more. Marcy, what do you want to end with this conversation? What's something that maybe you haven't been able to say or what's your biggest hope for your book? Just how do let's end on, on this about you, Marcy. Being able to talk about my mom, I haven't I haven't been able to talk about my mom's illness as much as I had hoped to. So this is this has been wonderful. And to also talk about the, her humanity has been really wonderful. I'm just so grateful that the book is being well received because I, I wasn't sure if it was going to be. I'm particularly grateful that Black women see themselves in the book because I really did want their story and their culture to be centered in it. I didn't want it to be unfamiliar to them. It's been a nerve wracking thing. I I admit to a lot of my own faults in the book and that that was scary, but necessary because I needed people to know how easily Blackness can be erased by white supremacy even in your own Black life, like your own humanity can be erased because you believe that you're you're supposed to not be fully Black and you don't know the history and, and learn what it meant for me to learn that history, how I ended up cooking a fried chicken dinner for a white supremacist, white sorority, like how that ended up happening and not, and watching Gone with the Wind and not knowing because I'd been erased. I'd been erased and erased and erased and erased and erased and and told so many times that my Blackness was not important. Check it at the door that I had to be colorblind to my own existence. And I think that that, that's something that I hope people pick up on, which is why I put those stories in of me fumbling and having to come out of it and go, wait, hold up now. (laughs) You know, like... Wait a minute. Why did that just happen? How did that just happen? All the ways that it happens, not just in, in white communities, but also in black communities, all the ways that we erase blackness. So um, I hope people see that in the book. Listen, the only interview I listened to with you, because I didn't want to repeat conversations, so I intentionally didn't, haven't listened, but I listened to you and Shay's conversation. I encourage listeners to listen to that because that's a different conversation because it's two black women talking about really being seen and feeling seen and, and the fight for that. And also your fight to like, leave those things in the book that, that were part of that journey. The first black woman to read the book. And so having Shay and I was nervous because we're friends. And I had said, when I started this book journey, I don't want to ask my friends for anything because I don't want to burden them with silly, but to have her react so strongly was really meaningful to me because I, I was worried that, you know, you just don't want, like, we've had so many Black women speak for all the Black women. Like I used to say back in the day, Oprah cannot speak for me. I love Oprah too, but I am not Oprah. You know, <laughs> like, you know, and Oprah's not me. So like, I was nervous about Black women feeling like I was speaking for them. I, I didn't want it to feel like that. I wanted it to feel like I, I was seeing them, not speaking for them. You end with talking about that. Like there's not enough Black books by Black authors, but there's too many. Like don't stop with mine. Don't let your book be the only oh book to read by a Black woman because it's, all, it's yeah. a plethora of stories. Like we can see each other in them, but your story is not the only story. So I think that's a plea that I want to reiterate that you have out there. Like don't let my book be the only book by a Black woman that you read? Absolutely don't. And don't let yourself just read Black stories of today. Read so many things. The daring that it took for so many Black women to get something written and published, like in the 20s, 30s, 40s, go read those stories. I mean, right. those books, because they, they weren't honored at all right. when they published those books. They weren't 
you know, Zora Neale Hurston was dogged from this person to that person when she was publishing. And it's important that you read her work because no one wanted to hear it. (laughs) And they weren't being able to go on podcasts and interviews on Instagram. I'm like, here's my story. Here's my book. Go buy it. They have not gotten the honor and merit that they need. So that's such a good, I love ending on that to like go encourage, read some of these black women writers that had to fight to get theirs. And they're still trying to fight to get the, leave their books on the shelf. So Marcy, tell my listeners, this has been a long conversation. Thank you for giving me so much of your time. And I know where all the places you can be found, but I want my listeners to know that about the black eyed studies, about all of the things that they can sign up for and keep following beyond, beyond your book. Well, the book is, I don't even know if we said it. It's everybody come alive, a memoir and essays. <laughs> I keep forgetting to tell people what the book is. That's the- I did forget that too. And I always start, but I'll have recorded that in the intro. So, but yes, it's everybody come alive. Everybody come alive. And that's available anywhere. I tell people if you can support a black owned bookstore, great. But if you can afford Walmart dollars, that's where your money, please buy it from Walmart. I mean, Buy it where you can afford it. But if you can support a Black bookstore, absolutely do that. Uh, You can see my work mostly on Instagram, Black Coffee White Friends. And I do have a newsletter. It's called Black Eyed Stories. And pretty soon I'm going to be launching a podcast on that. That will be exclusively for people who subscribe to the newsletter, whether you're paid or free. So that's me in a nutshell. And I have a website now. It's marcialviswalker.com. That's right. And I'll put um, links to the Black Eyed Studies, Black Eyed Bible Studies. It's more, it's like a womanist theology, really. I mean, it's so much, it's very much like your book of weaving in the Bible stories in a, in a womanist view. Yeah. I've been reading more with story lately, but then Shay and I did that thing on (laughs) on um, Bill Gothard and Hillsong and the Duggars. And I was like, oh my gosh, there's just still so much to talk about with this church. This church, there's still so much to talk about. Southern Baptist, women. I, I have my cup today in honor that you oh gave me. God. Listen yeah. to women preach. Yeah, I'm gonna have that for a while to have that out in honor of. I recently posted about Rick Warren and all of that too. Just, y'all. That's a whole, yes. Oh, yes. We can't get started. We can't. We're not going to start. I we, we could keep talking about that. We're not, we're going to stop Marcy. <laughs> I just, I love you. I adore you. I'm so grateful for you, our friendship, your work, just all of it, Marcy. I, I'm, I could keep gushing, but I just, just want you to know all of that. Just how much I appreciate you, Marcy. Little friend. Thank you. Love you.